0: And I hope you do find the book of Exodus, been working our way. We started a long time ago now in the book of Genesis. Some of y'all have been hanging in with us since the beginning, and that's okay. Some of y'all are joining, middle of the ride, and you can always go catch our journey through the book of uh, Genesis on our website if you're ever curious and can get sort of caught up with us uh, if you ever wanted to do that. But we're coming in in the middle of the roller coaster that is the book of Exodus, and we find ourselves today in chapter four. Exodus chapter four. And we're going to read the whole chapter, and then we'll dive in together. The word of God says, Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, "'Throw it on the ground.' So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, "'Put out your hand and catch it by the tail.' So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, "'Put your hand inside your cloak.'" And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, then take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf? Or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart." You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, "'Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead.' So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, "'When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go.' Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At the lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel, Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction. They bowed their heads and worshiped. This is the word of God. In Exodus 3 and 4, Moses finds himself at a turning point in his life. God has appeared to him in a burning bush, and he's put a calling on his life. He says, Moses, you're to go back into Egypt and lead the people out. Rescue them out of bondage to worship me on the mountain. And it sounded too good to be true. In fact, all the way back in chapter 3 and through into chapter 4, where we are this morning, Moses presents a series of objections to God's plan for his life. Have you ever done that? Have you ever known for sure what God wanted you to do, but you presented all these sort of obstacles and objections and tried to talk yourself out of it? Well, Moses here is going to try to talk God out of God's own plan for his life. But God is going to answer every objection. The omnipotent is going to overcome every potential obstacle that Moses might have. And while the specifics might look different, I think we are prone to think the same way Moses did. And I hope that God will, through his word today, overcome obstacles you may have to God's call and God's will for your life. In fact, Moses has four main objections that start all the way back in chapter 3 and work their way into chapter 4. So look back with me, chapter 3, verse seven. And we'll begin to see some of these objections. This is God is speaking to Moses here out of the burning bush. And he says this. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Israel. And I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. And I know their suffering. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel have come to me, and I've seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And here's the objection, verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Here's his first objection. It's the adequacy objection. Who am I? He says, Lord, who am I to do this? I'm not adequate to do this. Moses has just seen a great display of God's power and God's greatness, and he feels small. And he says, God... How will you do this? Don't you know how sinful and broken I am? But God's response is incredible because he doesn't actually deny that Moses is small and sinful and could never do this on his own. In fact, Moses is right about that. He could never accomplish this by himself. But Moses doesn't go alone. Chapter 3, verse 12. Look at this. He said, this is God speaking, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people of Egypt, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. God overcomes this obstacle by reminding Moses that he isn't really going to do anything, but that God through him will accomplish this. And maybe you feel like the task in front of you is impossible. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, God, I could never parent these kids that you've given to me. Maybe you're thinking, I could never step into this ministry. I know you're calling me to lead. Or maybe there's something at your job. that's like, I don't think I can do this job the way you'd call me to do. And here's God's answer, not only to Moses, but to you. He would say this, it isn't about who you are, but it's about who God is. God says, It's not about you, Moses. I will go before you. And in fact, Moses raises a similar objection in chapter 4. Flip over to chapter 4 and look at verse 10. Look what Moses says to God here in light of all of this. Moses said to the Lord, "Oh, my Lord, I am neither eloquent, either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Now, I don't actually think Moses was not an eloquent guy. Remember, we've read Genesis and Exodus, and Genesis was an incredible work, right? I mean, real intricate, real well thought through. Moses was definitely an eloquent guy. And and maybe what he's trying to say is, I'm better right in writing than I am speaking. But I also think Moses might have just tried to want to get away out of this. But regardless, he came with a concern of his own inadequacy, particularly whether he had the right gifts or not. And look what God says to him, verse 11, chapter 4, verse 11. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? And who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord?" Now, therefore, go and I will be with your mouth and teach you which you shall speak. Again, God promises Moses saying, I'm going to be with you. My presence is enough. And before we're too hard on Moses, because he has to ask God several times about this. How do we feel when we're complaining about a problem or presenting to something and somebody says, well, you know, God is with you. How do we react when we receive that news? And yet here we're hearing that God is going to be with Moses. And Moses is going to keep going. Verse 13, look at this. But he said, Oh my Lord, please send someone else. and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. God basically says, fine. If you're going to keep bugging me about it, Moses, if you're not going to think that I'm enough, I'm going to give you a friend. He says, Moses, your brother, Aaron, he is going to serve as your mouthpiece. And here's the point for us is that God will often give us other people to enable us to do what we could never do alone. God will often give us other people to enable us to do what we could never do alone. Moses, God was going to go with him. He didn't need anybody else. But he realized Moses needed some help, some self-confidence to do this. And so he said, hey, I'm going to give Aaron, I'm going to send him through you. And friends, God has given you family members, co-workers, church members, and friends to help you serve him in the place you are. And God has given you maybe to be an Aaron to someone else. This is how the whole church works together because your calling always intersects with someone else's. There is no calling, no vocation that is ever completely in isolation. There is nothing that you will ever do that you will truly ever do alone. We often want to talk about being all self-independent and all these things, and it's like, well, when I get out of the house and I'm paying rent and I'm doing all this, then I'll be independent. I'm like, well, well, sure, but who provides electricity to you? (laughs) And when the power goes out, are you going to go fix all that yourself? Or are there people that are able to do that for you? And, and how are you going to eat? You're going to go to the grocery store, but there's people that pack in that grocery store. And maybe even if you're going to go eat out every day, there's people that got to make those McNuggets for you, right? None of us are ever truly independent of one another. We need other people and we need to work together. And even in the church, this is why all of us together... Work together to serve through the church. And it's why it's so important. Moses says, God, I'm not adequate for this task. And God says, I'm going to go with you and I'm going to send Aaron alongside you to help you through this. Then Moses brings a second objection. This is the authority objection. Who will I say sent me? Look back, chapter 3, verse 13. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? What shall I say to them? When people ask, why am I doing this, God? What what am I going to say? Who sends me into this calling? God, what will I say to people who think I'm crazy? (laughs) Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. In other words, Moses, tell them that the God of the universe spoke to you in a burning bush and told you to do it. And in Moses' case, that's going to work. That may not work for any of you all in your situation, but it's going to work for Moses. But here's the, the principle here is ultimately the same. Because when it comes to considering your calling, you've got to start with God and his word. When it comes to considering your calling and what God would have you do, you need to start with God and his word. You're not likely to get a talking fire telling you what to do in your life. I just want to tell you that. And let me tell you, even the pastor as he's leading this church, you might think that I go into my room quietly and pray and angels descend and just tell me what to do. That doesn't happen, right? Sometimes you don't know what to do. And sometimes even going with that feeling inside of you isn't always the best thing, is it? Because there is a way that seems right to man that leads to death, right? And sometimes that feeling inside you could be the tacos you had the night before and not the Holy Spirit speaking to you, right? (laughs) And if we often did what felt right, there's many things that we know God is calling us to do that may not often feel like the right thing to do. So when it comes to considering our calling, we've got to start with God and His Word, start with God and His character. And the vision of Exodus 3 and 4 should remind us that God is the most important reality in the universe, and thus our priorities should match His. This is why we need to study God's Word and pray that our priorities might match His. But so often when people hear about finding their calling in God's Word, they want to go about it. In a really wrong way. Or or maybe you hear about man, I'm not even thinking about a job, Pastor Matter of Occasion. I just want to know who the Lord would have me marry. And there's people like, well, maybe I can go and read through the Bible and well, there's a woman named named Naomi. Maybe I need to go get married to Naomi. Or well, he's preaching about Aaron, and there's a guy named Aaron in my class. Maybe I should go ask him out. <laughs> There is a wrong way to come to the Bible seeking God's will. There are people who come and go, God, I'm just going to let my Bible fall open and let you tell me what I should do next in my life. And let me show you what could happen if you do that. There's a story of a man who wanted to find out what God had for his future. So he closed his eyes, he opened the Bible randomly, and he stuck his finger on the page and he opened his eyes and he read this. Matthew 27:5. Judas went away and hanged himself. The guy wasn't very happy about this, so he was like, I'm going to try again. I'm going to try again. So he prays. This time his finger falls on Luke 10, 37. Go and do likewise. <laughs> He's still not liking this answer, so the man's going to try one more time. Third time's the charm. Father, Son, Spirit. I'm going to do this. And his finger lands on this. John thirteen twenty seven. What you're about to do, do quickly. <laughs> I hope this illustrates to you the Bible doesn't work that way. <laughs> if you're seeking God's will for your life, don't just randomly throw open a page of the Bible and drop your finger down. Because, but that doesn't mean the Bible isn't meant to inform our priorities and make sure that our priorities align with God's priorities for our life. And this comes through careful study, through humble prayer in a community of other believers. We should start with a basic question like, would God want me to do this? So if there's a job position before you that might take you away from a community of believers... It might be that God isn't wanting you to do that because he says community with believers is the best possible thing you could have. Or maybe you're already in that job and you can't go back. Maybe God is going, hey, I want you to pray and seek and knock and look for other opportunities that might allow you to gather with my people. Or you can ask, will this impact other responsibilities in my life? There are going to be times where you have ministry opportunities or job opportunities that are going to take you away from family and it's not that those things should never be taken, but it, is, but it is telling you you need to plan to know how to address that and how to meet all the responsibilities in your life as a mother, a father, an employee, whatever those are. Maybe you have an opportunity to have a promotion and make more money. And while that's great, God's word is there to remind us that there are things more important than moving up the ladder and having a bigger take-home pay. You can make a lot of money and be very, very miserable. And we must, through prayer, God's word, and even outside counsel, consider what we would do. Ask, is God calling me to do this? And knowing that by taking the step of faith, he promises to be with us. And this brings us right into sort of the heart of chapter 4. Moses has presented, he says, hey God, I'm inadequate to do this. And I don't think they're going to listen to my authority. And these are obstacles to his calling. And he isn't done yet. Chapter 4 opens this way. Chapter 4, verse 1. Then Moses answered to God, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. Here's his third objection. This is the acceptance objection. Will they believe me? Are they going to receive me? In other words, God, what if other people reject my calling and tell me that I'm not supposed to do this? For Moses, this actually happened before, right? His Israelite family rejected him. His Egyptian family rejected him. And that's why he's ended up in Midian for the last 40 years. And he's like, God, I ain't got a lot of time to spend getting rejected and going out into the desert. He's already 80 years old. It's like, I ain't got a lot of time to be doing this. But God provides two signs and assurances to Moses. Look at verse 2. The Lord said to Moses, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. Isn't the Bible funny? I just think that's really funny. Anyway, but the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. He says, What if they don't listen? God says, Moses, I will show up in power. And all three of these signs anticipate things that are going to come in the life of Moses. Moses is going to take Egypt, which is sort of figured as a snake by the tail, and show them God's power. Moses is going to strike down and heal with leprosy, which foreshadows an interesting account later in the book of Numbers, which is connected to Moses' authority. And of course, isn't the first plague to come upon Egypt that water is going to be turned into blood? God will send signs through Moses to get the attention of the Israelites and the Egyptians, and Moses is going to receive a mixed reception. Verse 21 and 22 tells us that God is going to have to harden Pharaoh's heart and send judgment on the nation. This isn't going to be easy for Moses, but nothing worth doing is ever easy. And that's also a reminder that not everyone is always going to support you. We live in a culture crazy about affirmation. We need other people's affirmation just to breathe and to get up. And let me tell you something. You're going to have things in your life that you're going to have to do that other people are not going to affirm you in. That's just simply part of maturity in life is you are going to have haters. You're going to have people that don't like what you're doing. And that's okay. You cannot live for the affirmation of others. You've got to live by conviction that what you're doing is truly right. And God may not send plagues through you to the person who, who says nasty things to you on Facebook. And we shouldn't want that to happen. God probably isn't going to do that. But God will be with you even if faithfulness requires you to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You're going to have haters, but God says to Moses, don't let, don't, don't, don't let others who lack faith influence your faith. Let me take care of them. Trust me. Plus, for Moses' sake, he's not going to go entirely alone. He's not going to be rejected by every last little person around him. He's actually going to be given acceptance from his family. Look down later in the passage at verse 18. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. Imagine this conversation. Go back to his father-in-law, who for some reason I always imagine Jethro having some sort of rifle or something when he's coming into this conversation. And he says, Sir, I know I married your daughter, and I have your grandbabies can I take them and move them back to Egypt? Why have all these people that are trying to kill me? And then he sits back and he's like, what's he going to (laughs) say? I'm sure he was scared of this conversation, yet God gave him favor and acceptance. This happens again when Moses is reunited with his brother Aaron. Look down at verse 27. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. This is sort of the way they probably would have. Today, you probably would do some secret handshake with your bro, right? And Bring it in, hug it out. That was their way of doing that in those days. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. God gave Moses acceptance with his Israelite family and his Midianite family. And God caused the nation of Israel to hear and believe what they heard. Here's the point. What Moses was worried about, God had already taken care of. (laughs) Moses was so worried, are they going to accept me? But God had already sent Aaron before Moses even knew he needed him. God was working behind the scenes to bring the necessary pieces together. The Egyptians are going to at least listen due to the signs, though they're going to reject you. Your Midianite family are going to listen to you because they love you, and the Israelites will receive you because I'm already at work in them. How many of us are worried over things that really aren't our responsibility to worry about? Moses can't change what other people are going to say about him. But God could. He couldn't control what the Egyptians or his family or the nation of Israel did. But God could. And the same goes with you. You can't control what other people say or do or think. And that should just bring a huge weight off of your shoulders. You are not responsible for how other people react. But you can trust the one who is in control of all things the one who sends signs as confirmation and judgment, he's going to bring them out of Egypt to worship God on this mountain. And there's actually an incredible moment of assurance as Moses and Aaron are here connecting on the mountain that God said he would eventually bring them back to. God will certainly do it. God is answering every one of Moses' objections. He may be inadequate, but he has God's presence God's even going to send Aaron along with him. He may not have authority on his own, but he's sent by the one who is the the I Am, who spoke to him through the burning bush. And he may not be accepted, but God's already made a way before him. The family will support him. The nation will follow. God will take care of the rest. But there was really two other things that needed to happen for Moses to embrace his calling. And first and foremost, he had to go, Right? God can tell you all day what he promises to do, but you need to lean into it and step forward in faith. Verse 20, so Moses took his wife and his sons and he put them in the minivan. I mean, he had them right on a donkey and he went back to the land of Egypt and Moses took the staff of God in his hands. And along the way, God's just reminded him, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna harden Pharaoh's heart. And I'm gonna bring you through this. But before Moses was fully ready for this, there was one other thing he forgot to do. Moses had not made all the necessary preparations. He encounters from all people his wife, the last objection, the arrangement objection. Have I made all the necessary preparations to do what God would have me do? And God, through his wife, Zipporah, is going to overcome this objection as quickly as it comes in very dramatic Fashion. They're on a road trip, and they're about to have a family argument on the road trip back to Egypt. Verse 24, look at this. At the lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it, and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood, because of the circumcision. How is that for a Bible story? You don't get that in those little children's Bibles, right? You don't talk about this at VBS. They're on the way in the minivan having a spat, and she pulls out a knife. (laughs) No matter how you might argue with your spouse, at least she hasn't pulled out the knife yet, (laughs) right? And then we see God, the God who called him, is now trying to kill him. What happened? They left the house unprepared. <laughs> Moses, in particular, left the house unprepared. And this wasn't the sort of unprepared like Dana and I experienced where we were driving to Michigan. We get all the way, almost all the way to Michigan and realize we've packed the dog, but we forgot the dog food. <laughs> you can pull off at a pet smart, get your dog food, and go on the way, right? But Moses left one major thing undone. He forgot to circumcise the kids. And this may not seem like a big deal to us, but circumcision was the central act of obedience for the children of Abraham. All the way back in Genesis 17, up to Moses' day, the Hebrew people circumcised their children to mark them off as a family and devote them to the Lord. He had brought an undevoted family to a singularly devoted task. He didn't even do the ABCs, but he was now expected to go and lead the people. And friends, Moses knew it. And that's why Zipporah takes matters into our own hands. Friends, this wasn't like her getting upset because he didn't do the dishes or he didn't mow the yard. No, 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 no. He put the family's life in danger. He can't take his family before a holy God when they're not devoted to him. This was a big deal. And so she circumcises the kids right there in dramatic fashion, makes her husband see the potential consequences of his actions. He was a bridegroom of blood. He threatened the whole family's well-being. So you might ask, what does this have to do with me? First, it says, watch out if they're bringing a knife on the trip, right? But no, here's the point. Doing what God calls you to do will require you to make the proper preparations the proper arrangements on behalf of yourself and your family. And what happened with Moses here is Moses should have known better. Moses did know better. Zipporah was a Midianite, which means she had sort of a distant connection to Abraham and the nation of Israel. But Moses not only knew better, he should have acted. And man, this is a reminder to us that we are to lead our families to be all in, not just to be halfway and not just to lead them as far as is comfortable, because these kids were now a lot older when this whole circumcision thing took place. I'm sure that was an interesting uh, situation to have to deal with with some growing kids, right? But he said, do the painful work of leading the kids to be all in. You think they were mom's best friend and dad's best friend after this occurred? Probably not. <laughs> but they needed to be brought in. They needed to be devoted to this house. the whole family had to be brought in. They had to say, "As for us in our house, we will serve the Lord." And we need to know this: We cannot pursue a walk with God without taking the first steps. Some of us have been trying to do that, And let Moses be an example for you. That makes for a deadly journey. You wouldn't try to climb Everest without preparation, so why do we try to pursue God's call without any preparation? Some of us need to take the very first step of surrender, of faith in Jesus Christ. Others of us need to take the step of believer's baptism, declaring our allegiance publicly that Jesus is Lord. Others of us need to take the step of church membership and stop trying to walk the walk of faith alone. But friends, many of us are trying to lead without even taking the first steps of focusing even on our own soul care, of pursuing God daily, and of leading our families to do the same. Because Moses is in many ways just like us. We all have objections to what God has for us. Or if you haven't yet, you will. None of us are going to pursue God's call in our life unwavering. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We failed to love God and love neighbor as we ought. But the good news is that unlike Moses or unlike any of us, there is one who perfectly obeyed God's will and God's word. There is one who has perfectly obeyed in our place. Isaiah 50 verse 7 tells us that the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, would set his face like flint on a mission. And then we read in the Gospel of Luke, this, in Luke nine fifty one that Jesus, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He was set and focused, unwavering on what his father sent him to do. In the garden, as his death drew near, he prayed, God, not my will, but yours be done. In the book of Hebrews, as we read at the opening of our service, tells us that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. That there is one who, unwavering, without objection, pursued the Father's will, and his name is Jesus. And by Jesus' obedience, we are saved. By Jesus' obedience, we are saved. He obeyed the Father's will. He came to earth born of a virgin, and he lived a sinless life all the way through adulthood, perfectly obeying his Father's will and not without temptation. Remember, the sa- Satan in the, in the desert, in the wilderness, tempting him to give it all up or to have it all too soon. And he laid down his life in light of the joy of resurrection and, and the joy of, eternal, of our eternal life. And he died in the cro- on the cross in our place. And he rose again so that we could experience life with God. And we so often think about life with God as something that happens when we die, but the Bible says eternal life begins the moment you believe in Jesus, to know God, to love him, and to be in relationship with him. And if you're in Jesus today, everything that comes to you comes to you through nail-scarred hands of love why not gladly surrender all of our life and all that we have to such a beautiful and glorious Savior? The invitation of this message is surrender. Some of you need to cut the excuses, to stop the objections, and to step forward in faith on whatever God would have you to do. Maybe today you've been holding off believing in Jesus because you're like, I want to have a little more fun before I really get serious about this Jesus thing. What He would say, cut the objections, surrender, place your faith in Jesus today, because that's where joy and true life are found. Maybe today you've got something in your life, in your job, a ministry opportunity, whatever it is, something that's just been working in your soul, and you've been trying to fight it and object to it the whole time. And you're like, well, maybe God will tell me what I need to do. Here he is telling you to lay aside the excuses and the objections, to put a blank check of your life on the table and say, whatever you want from me, God. And the Lord's Supper is a reminder of Jesus' surrender for us, that he gave his life and he spilled his blood for us. And it's a reminder to us as we eat and drink that we're to surrender our all to him. So as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, we're going to have some time to reflect as the juice and the cup are passed. The Lord's Supper is open to any uh, baptized believer in Jesus, to those who have surrendered their life to him. The table's open, and as the elements are passed, you're welcome to take bread and juice and hang on to them, because we'll take it all together. But in the meantime, begin to think about, what in my life have I not surrendered where in my life am I still in objection and in a war with God? And the invitation would be to lay down your arms and to come to the God of peace. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we're so thankful that you are kind to us. Even when we offer our own objections and our own agendas and our own a plan for our lives. We're thankful that you lovingly correct us through your word. Lord, even though you were angry with Moses, you didn't consume him, but you enabled him to know you and to love you and to correct him back on the path. And so today I ask that you would, through us, correct us and bring us back on the path toward obedience to you. Lord, that if any of us are objecting to your call in our life, whether that's the initial call of salvation or the call to some sort of service, Lord, I ask that you would help us in these moments to surrender and to trust your goodness and kindness toward us and that you have a better plan than we could ever ask or think or imagine. And that may not mean it's comfortable, it may not mean it's easy, but we do it in light of the joy set before us. And so, Lord, as we celebrate, the Lord's Supper. May we remember your death. May we remember your surrender for us. Lord, may we in response surrender to you. And we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Supper is a reminder of Jesus' surrender for us, a reminder and a call for us to surrender anew our life to Him. Today we take this supper together as a faith family, knowing that none of us can walk the walk of faith alone, and that we need one another in this path together. So we look here at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord, but also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my, my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. But the Lord's Supper is a second sermon, a second invitation to us to feed and to trust on the one who is our life and our hope and our Savior. So I just invite you again, whatever you need to surrender over, This isn't just something you can do in this room. It's something you can do wherever you are, calling on the one who promises that whosoever would call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved as a God who hears and a God who's near. And we close our service with a benediction, a blessing, as we head out into the world as missionaries to share the good news of this God. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10 and 11. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen.